Our Heavenly Father, we do confess that this is your word and that in your light we see light. And so we ask, dear Father, that you, by your Spirit, would open your word to us at this time that we might see Christ, that we might be drawn to him by faith. Father, we thank you and praise you for condescending to give us this word, for speaking to us, for lisping to us even. And so, Lord, we ask that you would indeed bless us, give us attention as we do so, as the word is preached, that is read, that is received. And we do pray, Lord, that the hearts of, and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you. And we ask this all in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. First John chapter 3, starting at verse 4. 1 John 3, 4. Give your full attention, this is the word of God. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Where does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. So for the reading of God's word, may he indeed add his blessing upon it at this time. In the verses um, preceding our text this morning, Paul has made a point that our hope in this life and in the next, at the last day, at the judgment, the day of judgment, our hope, our anchor of that hope is our union with Jesus Christ. What's his is ours, right? His righteousness, his holiness is ours. All that he merited and earned by that covenant of works, successfully he merited for us. Heaven must be earned, and indeed it was earned by Christ. And for us who are united to him, that is ours as well, right? And then John goes on next in this section that we're in today um, to answer that logical kind of follow-up question that would come, and that is this, that if believers in the final day receive new glorified bodies, and that's how we'll know them, identify them, how do we identify the children of God now in this life? Um, And the answer that John gives here is very similar to what we read in Matthew um, and other places, but Matthew 7 uh, says this. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit, bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Right? And how does John explain this? Right? What does John relate to this? It's essentially the same thing that he's saying. What's he mean that the children of God practice righteousness? Right? He goes on through this passage um, again and again saying this. Uh, we see this in verse 4, right? John begins this section in verse 4 by defining the nature of sin 
which is critically important and should be important to us, is foundational to our understanding of our redemption, right? The, the, the way that we view sin directly impacts the way that we view salvation, right? Man's condition um, speaks very much as to what man's salvation is to be, right? What is held out in the gospel. And so if sin, right, is not so bad, then perhaps our predicament is not so bad, right? If our fall and our condition is not that, is not that messy, well, well, then salvation is not that wonderful. And that, of course, is not true. And certainly in our culture, and sadly some in the church, sadly many in the church, have drank the poison of diminishing sin, of lessening sin, of softening sin. You've heard people excuse away sin with things like calling dishonesty a white lie, right? A violation of the Ninth Commandment is still just a white lie. Others just pretend Scripture doesn't say what it says, what it clearly says, right? And they want to harmonize God's Word with the world's sins and try to excuse all sorts of perversions, denying God's clear Word, and this indeed is a diminishment of God's law and a diminishment of man's violation of that law. Romans 1 speaks with crystal clarity. And God says about here in Romans 1 about his wrath on the unrighteous, on the unrighteousness and ungodliness of, uh, of unrighteous men who suppress the truth. And he goes on to give examples of this ungodliness which deserves his wrath. Right? Romans 1, we, we read a number of things, but we read this. For although they, speaking of the unrighteous man, the ungodly, who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of, and then he goes on with this list, right? Uh, Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then he says the most terrifying thing, the most shocking part of this, and speaking of these unrighteous men and their actions and, and the, 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 the just judgment upon them, he says this in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. That should be horrifying to all of us. It's a, a, a remarkable thing. And so this clear word from the Lord in his word, nevertheless, it's faddish in some churches today, and for some professing believers even, to say, I don't want to accept what God's word says here. I don't want to be 
uh, mean. I want to be nicer. I don't want to have a mean heart. And they put their desires, which are contrary to God's clear word, above that word of God, and they think nothing of it. They celebrate it, right? They not only practice such things, but they give approval to it. And they think nothing of it. And, you know, whenever any of us do this, right, regardless of the sin, that's a long list there, right? When we disregard God's words for our wants, we are saying, my way, right? My way is the summa bonum. It's the, the greatest good. I don't care what you say, Lord. I don't care what you say. And there are definitely degrees of sin. But we can use that. Uh, that that truth that there are degrees of sin, to see our sins as less than the other guy's worst sin, right? And that's an error that we can make. But what does John say here? As he is led along by the Holy Spirit, what does he tell us? Verse 4 tells us at its core, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Cut and dry, plain and simple. John doesn't downplay sin. He doesn't downplay the nature of sin. Every act of sin, regardless of the size, is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion against God. It's God. It's rebellion against God's law. And the practice of sinfulness is contrary to the identity of the Christian, of the believer. Remember this whole letter of 1 John, he's dealing with um, deniers of the incarnation, right? That Jesus was the Christ, that he is the Savior, Right? And so he's defending uh, the incarnation of Christ and the person of Christ. And that's another um, uh, reason as to why abiding sin in the life of a believer is something that is unacceptable. <clears throat> and John tells us the very reason Christ's incarnation became was to what? To put away sin, he says. To put away sin. In verse 5, he says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin, right? Christ came to do away with sin. He suffered, he died, he paid the penalty for that sin, right? Second <clears throat> Corinthians 5 says, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, right? That's the great exchange, that glorious reality of the believer's life. And so we look at the crucifixion of Christ and the depths of his suffering, and we see how abhorrent this is, how distasteful, how uh, uh, how, how contrary to the reality of who we are uh, in Christ is living in sin. And so here we start to see um, the depths to which Christ condescended to take away our sin. And John tells us that in Christ there is no sin, right? In Christ there is no sin at the end there. And remember in verses 1 to 3, uh, we read that we will be completely and totally conformed to his image in the last day, completely conformed to the image of Christ. All the vestiges of sin eradicated from us forever, right? And that is the goal of our redemption, right? And this again, this means that every last remnant of sin will be removed from our bodies on that final day. And that is glorious indeed. It should be glorious and wonderful to you. It should warm your heart. It should get your blood flowing, right? The removal of sin, Right in glory, promised for us as held out as we belong to and are united to Jesus, and so we see these things. Right, the nature of sin that is lawlessness, the nature of our redemption that Christ came to put away sin, the nature of our glorification. Right, that every single 
uh, vestige of sin will be removed from our bodies, and we see Christ's sinlessness, right? And given all of that, we can see why sin is so contrary to the identity of the life of the Christian, the life, the practice of the believer. And so if that's the case, right, that being the case, how do we know the believer from the non-believer, right? This is what Paul is kind of laying out for us. How can we tell who is and is not a child of God? <clears throat> Especially in regard to those who are upsetting the church, who were uh, teasing the church, drawing them out to separate from the truth. John says that the one who belongs to Christ is marked, characterized by the practice of righteousness. He or she is characterized by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right? A good tree, as we read in Matthew, produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. And so John says in verse 7 here, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Those who belong to Christ have the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And it is in the Holy Spirit, uh, it's the Spirit who produces his fruit within us, within the believer. Right? And we see this not just here in 1 John, but we see it in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 1. The first Psalm tells us that, uh, remember, uh, this uh, Psalm 1 sets the tone for the rest of the Psalter, right? And it sets the tone in contrasting um, the two ways, right? The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And it describes and it gives characteristics of the two. It tells what they are like, right? The righteous and the wicked. And of the righteous man, Psalm 1 says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, in its season. And then Jesus in Matthew says, you will know them by their fruit. And Paul says in his writings that the Holy Spirit produces fruit, produces righteousness within us who are born again of God. Then John says that the way that we know a child of God is the practice of righteousness, practice of righteousness. And notice the way that uh, if you have the English Standard Version, it brings out what the text actually says, right? It's not a righteous act or a sinful act that he's contrasting, but a practice of life, a lifestyle of the righteous and of the wicked. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, right? Keeps on sinning, has a life of sin. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him, has known him. And notice here the Apostle John, the aged Apostle John, he is not soft. He's not wishy-washy. He's not weak in how he speaks. He doesn't speak in a sense of this false, feigned, superior, superior acceptance or tolerance. It's not how he talks. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said that tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions, right? And that's true in regards to sin, right? Tolerance is a virtue of a man without convictions, especially in regard to sin. He not tolerate sin, right? John is forthright in what he says here. He's straightforward. He doesn't pull punches. The one who is consistently, who has a consistently sinful lifestyle, he says, has neither Christ nor has known him. That's fairly bold. That's very forceful. That's stark. In our instinct, when we hear this from John, is to say, whoa, we don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be negative. But John is blunt, right? John is blunt. 
Uh, the truth needs to be told and it needs not to be softened. It doesn't need our help to um, make it less pungent. It is. <clears throat> he is blunt. He says that the one who the one who is in Christ cannot have a lifestyle of unchecked sin. That person does not know Christ, nor does Christ know that person. And it's certainly a warning what we read here from the Apostle John, the Apostle of love, as he's referred to. And we think, well, I sin, right? Even as a believer, I, I sin. Does that mean that I don't know Christ or that he doesn't know me? Does that mean, John, that I'm a child of the devil? Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Right? What is that? I'm a believer. I, I, I still sin. What does this tell me? Right? And these are the kind of verses that have haunted unnecessarily believers um, for centuries, right? But it can't be true. I'm not of the devil. I'm not one who has not known Christ, and Christ has not known me. And how do we know that, right? We know that from the rest of the letter. John does not contradict himself. God does not contradict himself in giving us his word. And you remember in, first, in chapter 1 we read, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we, have, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Right? So it's clear from this letter that John is aware, right? It's clear that true believers will struggle in their lives, will struggle, struggle in this life prior to glory with sin. And that's the wonderful thing, wonderful thing about the gospel, right? Is that we're forgiven in Christ. We're given, forgiven in Christ. He appeared to take away sin. It says, and then in verse 8, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the pattern of life for those who belong to this Jesus will not be wickedness, will not be sinning. Right? The pattern of life. He has you. He's for you. If you belong to him, he's done all that was needed to free you from the punishment and the power and the guilt of that sin. You're free. Right? The cell door is open it's for you to walk out of that cell. Yet we struggle, and John knows of this struggle. We see the contrast, though, that John is giving throughout this, and particularly in this section of his letter, right? Sin, lawlessness, works of evil, works of the devil, children of the devil, versus love and works of righteousness, children of God. And we look at Scripture, and we see these examples of this reality, right? David, for instance, in the Old Testament. Right. It says he was a man who was a man after God's own heart. Right, he was his practice of life was one of righteousness. Yet we know what happened with David. Right, he committed sin. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He killed her husband, Uriah the Hittite. But what characterized his life? Right, what characterized his life? Remember the most glorious and beautiful crying out to God that David did. In Psalm 51, after being confronted by Nathan the prophet of his sin, do you remember? Psalm 51, this psalm, penitential psalm, to, to give us, for all of us, to pray back to God ourselves for our own sin. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Then he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Right, there is a, a repentance, right? There's a repentance that we see here. He's broken that he sinned against his Lord. You know, we contrast this with a repentance that, or with a, a guilt that doesn't lead to life, but leads to death, right? Think of, think of the distinction between Peter and Judah, right? Judah, when he was convicted of his sin, what did it lead to? It led, led him to die, right? to, go, to, to hang himself. But Peter, remember Peter after he denied the Lord three times, and he's in the water, and he sees Christ on the shore. What was his response? Do you remember? He couldn't get to Christ fast enough. Right? His, 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 his guilt led him to Jesus. He couldn't get back. He jumped out, out of the boat and goes to Christ. As with David, right? David is characterized as a man after God's own heart. This means that he was one who practiced righteousness. And we too, we flee to the Lord with broken hearts. That we've broken his law and besmirched his will and put our will above his. And we pray for cleansing and restoral and safety because we love him. We must believe what he says, brothers and sisters. We must believe what he says. You are free in Christ. You are forgiven. You're not bound anymore. The shackles of sin and death are no longer upon you. They've been freed. You are free in Christ. We must believe him that we have been raised to walk in newness of life. We are new creations. We must trust that he is working in us, that he's abiding in us to conform us to the image of our Savior, which we read throughout the New Testament. We must pursue holiness because in Christ we are holy. We are to be who we are. We've been made new. It was John Calvin that said, the Lord has made you clean. It's not for you to dirty yourself again. You're not bound to that, right? And so if it's Christ's flawless, impeccable righteousness with which we are clothed before the Father. The glorious reality. Let us not forget, brothers and sisters, that we are bought with a price and we are not our own. The Lord will save, will rise up our bodies. Our bodies are not the prison house of the soul, as was the belief in the context that Paul is um, speaking into. They'll be raised and reunited with our spirit on that last day. right? And so listen to the testimony of God's word regarding this. Isaiah 26 Incredible. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Right? That sounds very first uh first Corinthians 15-ish, right? You will dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Romans 8, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only our, not only the creation, 
But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then Philippians 3, right? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. May we remember this glorious truth, brothers and sisters. You've been bought with a price. You've been bought, and even your bodies will be saved. Receive a glorious body, reunite with your spirit on that last day. May it give you hope and strength in this life. And with the help of the Spirit, may you grow in your faith and be strong, to be strong and pure in your practice. And because this is true, you've been freed from the bondage that your sins once plagued and imprisoned you. May you go from here, dear believer. May you go back into the world with renewed hope and assurance that you are clean. You're clean in Christ. He has purchased you. And that means something. It means everything. It's all important. How glorious our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is. And may you go with renewed desire to glorify God in your bodies, in your lifestyle, in the practice of your life, for all of life, for him, knowing that you've been redeemed by Christ and those bodies will be raised on the last day. And may we know, may we be known for our practice of righteousness and love in this world for Christ. Let us be aware of who we are in him, living for him always. Let us be who we are in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your love and mercy towards us. We thank you that we are new creations. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe the truth that you tell us in your word. Lord, increase our faith. We are so feeble and forgetful and foolish so often in life. Lord, we pray, help us us to be strong in the strength of Christ's might. We praise you that you are mighty. Lord, we praise you that that you remember, that you... uh, are wise. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to increasingly in our life reflect the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ for his glory. Uh, Lord, that you may use us, even us, uh, to witness to the truth of the gospel in this life to a dead and dying world. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.